0: Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now.
1: Hello, this is Russell Moore and you're listening to Signposts. This is the place where every week or so I electronically invite you to listen in with me on conversations that I have with thinkers and leaders. And we also have our other uh, podcast, Russell Moore podcast, where we deal with uh, your questions on ethical issues and Bible study. And of course, the cross and the jukebox, where we look at music through the prism of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here on Signposts, we look for those pointers toward grace as Walker Percy would put it, signposts in a strange land. And I've been looking forward to this uh, program for a long time because our guest today is Philip Jenkins, who is Distinguished Professor of History and Religious Studies at Baylor University. I have been following his work for years and years uh, and have especially benefited from his work on the Global South. You'll you'll see that uh, referenced often in what we talk about here. And he has a new book uh, called Fertility and Faith, The Demographic Revolution and the Transformation of World Religions through uh, Baylor University Press. It was on my top 10 books of 2020, if you'll remember that from just uh, a few weeks ago. And so I've really been looking forward to this uh, conversation. Professor Jenkins, thanks for being with us today.
2: Well, thank you very much for the invitation.
1: I was fascinated by this book, and one of the things that I was fascinated by from really the almost the first sentence is the way that you look at secularization. And I know that there are a lot of people who are uneasy when they think about the concept of secularization, and a lot of them have the idea— that the more that a society is educated and affluent, the less religious that society is. And so sometimes both religious and non-religious people have this either hope or fear that religion is just going to go away. And you talk about at the beginning that that's a simplification of uh, of what's actually going on in the world what's true and what's false about the popular idea of secularization
2: i i try to avoid that word because it uh, combines a lot of different things and we think of secularization often as if it mean as if it's somehow equivalent to um, atheism and it uh, it isn't what it uh, often means is that there's a change in the quality of religious expression that can be very bad news indeed for uh, religious institutions, but not for uh, religious behavior. So you can have a society uh, where there's been a great decline in religious institutions, but people have moved on to other ways of uh, expressing their faith that may be maybe more individual, more uh, more decentralized. So um th- there isn't a neat um linkage between uh education and a move to the secular. There are many counterexamples you can point to uh there, but it's a uh it's a complex process. I'm I am not here just to, if you like, give um give bad news, but I'm trying to sound the alert uh about a change in the nature and quality of religious behavior that I think all churches maybe really uh, need to be aware of and need to build into their thinking.
1: Well, let's let you, you talked about the, the effect on institutions, but a kind of religiosity that's less centralized. What mm-hmm. what would that look like for someone who's who's wondering uh, what would the contrast be? Uh, let's suppose uh, there's a, a family in nineteen nineties. Uh, who are going to church every Sunday, maybe going to a Wednesday night Bible study, their kids Mm -hmm. in children's ministries and so forth. Let's look at their grandchildren uh, Mm -hmm. in in maybe the decade to come. Uh, What would religious life, if we just looked at a typical pattern, look like for these grandchildren?
2: Well, if you think back, um, you know, three or four generations, then so much of religion is based on, uh, it's based on family, it's based on the place of work. And all those, you can assume uh, the structures uh, are firm and they're going to exist over a long period. If you work uh, for a particular enterprise, maybe you're going to be doing that for, you know, 30 or 40 years, given the fact that uh, lives uh, are shorter, you're going to have these large extended uh, families. Of course, none of that is true today. People are much more likely to be living um, uh, alone or in small uh, units. There is children probably do not form part of the uh, structure, and that means that by definition, many people do not know people who they see at school, they see at their place of work. Maybe they're doing a a job where six months represents a really long spell for a particular uh, employer. Well, think that through in terms of religion, when you are as uh, as cut off uh, from that, you cannot make any of the old um, assumptions. But that certainly does not mean that you can, um, you can expect people to give up on religion. It's a question of uh, churches reaching out in ways people understand. Uh, interestingly, the Roman Catholic Church has made a lot of efforts in this way. They've said, you know, the old mass church was a wonderful thing, but it's just not the only way of doing church. So what they've done is move towards a situation that's based more on um, smaller, more committed uh, groups that represent 11 in the larger uh, society where uh, evangelism is not done with people in your school, in your job. Uh, It's based on networks. People you you happen to meet you bring along to these informal uh, gatherings, and you discuss and uh, raise ideas uh, there. So what it's doing is it's taking account of a whole new world, and in the context of the 2020s, and so much of that is going to be uh, through the medium of the uh, the internet. And I'm trying to avoid the uh, the Z word, which is uh, Zoom. Um, but I'm afraid a lot of it is going to be that uh kind of um kind of interaction. So we're dealing with a new uh social world, new demographic world, new uh new family world. Um and my, my fear is that many churches are still stuck in a world where they're assuming um, long-term uh, employment, uh, large connected uh, families, many, uh, many children. They may not say this overtly, but that's kind of in the background. And those churches are in for a terrible wake-up, I'm afraid, particularly over the next uh, decade, which I see is a particularly critical time.
1: Do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic, which has really forced a change in the way that churches do things uh, over the past year. W- would that have accelerated some of the expectations that you would have for the changing of religious life in America, or 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 is it just a, a pause that will resume back to normal
2: patterns? I've obviously been giving a lot of thought to this, and I use an analogy, which is the great uh, economic crisis that hit back in 2008, 2009, Um, It now seems obvious that that crisis led to a major trend towards secularization in the sense of institutional decline. In other words, people detaching from church loyalties, including groups who had always assumed to be very faithful to their churches, especially among Latino Um, populations. That's the point at which you get the great upsurge of nuns in this country, that is people who say they have no religious affiliation. And there are lots of reasons for that, but 2020 is 2008, only far more so in terms of its impact on society, on economy, on the ability of people to uh, form families, and maybe in a couple of years after that to uh, rediscover uh, their churches. But I think we are in 2020, 2021, living through an absolute revolution in um, very basic concepts of what it means to be at church, and I, I use key words like um, uh, presence, uh, participation, the um, the physical idea of um, of being in church. Churches have made heroic efforts to carry on their services through uh, through Zoom, through all sorts of remote um, functions, but those are just not the same in terms of how people behave, in how people think, and they cannot fail to be. A real uh, detachment. If you combine that with the economic impact, the social impact, um, th- then I think we are living through, I would say, an age of unprecedented um, experiment. And I'm, I, I, I will tell you, my fear that uh, I think the next decade could mark a decade of religious change and crisis in the United States, such as we really have not seen, or perhaps ever. I think it might be an unprecedented um, era in that way. You know, there are people who will be very glad that they are scholars and able to observe this trend, but some of us are just rather nervous about what is indeed, um, uh, indeed happening. What
1: do declining birth rates have to do with, uh, with this change in, in religious uh, life in America?
2: Right. We measure uh, fertility in a society, that is the number of children a woman will have during the course of her uh, life. There is a very strong correlation between fertility and levels of religiosity in a community. A society with very high birth rates is going to be a society with very strong, very passionate religion, and vice versa. Low religion tends to correspond to low Uh, fertility. Um, In Europe in the 1960s, we entered this kind of new world of very low fertility and very rapid secularization. And people said, well, gee, this is the Europeans. It's people like the Danes and the Norwegians. And for whatever reason, they're acting in this strange way. But then that pattern, that Scandinavian pattern started spreading around the world. Um, Low fertility, low faith. Um, and Americans said, well, that's the rest of the world. It's not us. But since 2008, 2009, it is us. So American fertility rates are now below those of the Scandinavian countries. They're now very Scandinavian. And we have a great deal of precedent to suggest that uh, what will follow that will be a sharp decline in institutional uh, religion. Note, I did not say a growth of atheism, but a great decline of religious behavior in anything like the forms that we recognized. And the 2010s were a great era of transition there. You know, uh, 20 years ago, the number of people who said they had no religious affiliation was very, very small, the nuns. Now, there are three big religious groups in the United States. There are evangelicals, there are Catholics, and there are nuns. And the nuns are growing by far the fastest, and they already considerably outnumber Catholics. Uh, Think of the United States as a nation of nuns and evangelicals, and we think of what will happen in the next decade, and I return to my point about very rapid uh, transition.
1: There are some people who would say, Well, the United States is different. There's uh, American exceptionalism and we're really not going to see the same sorts of patterns that we see in Europe because there's a pattern in America of great awakenings and uh, we're just a revival away from this sorting itself out. How would you respond to that sort of
2: argument? I would say that everything that is uh, said there was exactly what people used to say about uh, countries in Europe. Uh, like Belgium, which was famous as the most passionately uh, Catholic country, and the Netherlands, um, which was still having sensational visions of the Virgin Mary among its Catholics in the 1950s. And people said, well, countries as religious as this will never really decline. You look at the Canadian province of Quebec, which was legendary as the most passionately Catholic area in uh, in the world, and today is the least religious area in the world, except insofar as it has these immigrants from Africa and Asia and the Caribbean who are often the only occupants of all those great historic Catholic churches. all right, I'm talking about a Catholic context there um but i I see no reason in the United States for any great um any great difference had you told me twenty years ago that the u s would have the degree of secularization it has had so far and the degree of fertility decline, I would have been um very uh, uh, very skeptical um, indeed. Um, so I maybe it's not that uh, the u s is a revival away from a re, uh, religious growth. But I think a great deal of the religious growth and expansion that uh, does occur will be a matter for uh, immigrant religion, immigrant Christian religion, rather than perhaps what we call old stock uh, Americans, whether white or black. Mm. This episode
0: is brought to you in part by Matthew 5, 9 Fellowship, who supports evangelical pastors and leaders in shepherding their communities to live the gospel and place their identity in jesus christ above partisanship and societal divisions jesus has called his disciples to be peacemakers and that call is particularly needed in our often toxically polarized society the matthew 5:9 fellowship provides resources to help pastors leaders and their communities faithfully navigate difficult issues without dividing over them it fosters relationship by connecting like-minded evangelical leaders across the country. Also, they care about the personal well-being of pastors and leaders, so they provide space and opportunities to experience spiritual renewal to ensure leaders flourish both privately and publicly. A polarized country needs a peacemaking church. Check us out at matthew59.org. Sign up for our monthly newsletter and download free resources such as our Transcending Toxic Polarization booklet using the code MATTHEW59.
2: What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood.
0: A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world.
1: 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and
2: sirens go off and they're, and they're going on.
0: Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew
2: in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much.
1: I am alive because I wasn't, I I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there.
0: This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place.
1: One of the things that was fascinating to me in fertility and faith, obviously, if, uh, if a church is aging and doesn't have young people, doesn't have a next generation, that church is going to die. That's, that's obvious. But what was, uh, what was unique to me in your argument is that it's not just that these churches will ultimately die out, But having teenagers and young adults, uh, that leads to a different sort of ethos and a different sort of mission. And uh, as you made that argument, I I immediately thought, well, yes, I don't know how I haven't thought of it that way, but I have seen that happen just anecdotally a thousand times over, that there's just a a changing of that institution if there's not a, a large group of teenagers or young adults or college students or what have you.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely, and you you think of what happens when you take children um, out of what a church does. Uh, so much of what a church does traditionally was about um, a, a sequence of um, from uh, uh, babies to toddlers to children to uh, teenagers. In other words, churches offered a full life cycle uh, experience. Um, when you take children out of that um, equation, what is left for ch- uh, churches uh, uh, to do? And, you know, obviously there are a great many um, possible things, but it's just in a, um, a radically uh, uh, different world. Traditionally, so much of what churches in any society did um, was prepare children for uh Different ch- uh, changes in um, in life from you know, uh, first uh, uh, first communion in particular churches or uh, uh, or whatever uh, once you take that family uh, theme out of a church, uh, it makes it very easy indeed for the families themselves or the individuals to detach from that church and to have no bonds left, so you deal with a very atomized church and the question then is. How do you reach those people uh how do you bring them back and what is church for because if it is just a club of uh elder people who are worried about the noise from from the kids who are outside the church then that's not a community that i particularly want to belong to
1: i heard a friend of mine sky jathani say make this argument a couple of years ago and i don't know if it's original with him or if he was citing someone else But he was talking about the phenomenon of license to license, uh, where the old pattern was that that one almost expected a kind of disengagement from when an adolescent received his driver's license and when he or she married, got the the wedding license, uh, marriage license. Uh, But that now, that period of time between license and license is so great in terms of uh, the aging of, of when one marries that we can't really expect that anymore, that, that the patterns are sort of set by then. Would you agree with that argument? Absolutely,
2: and also when you think that um, when, when that uh, second license comes along, if somebody is going to be having uh, four and five children, Then there are many, many reasons to take that family back to their uh, uh, their church. If uh, if somebody is marrying in the mid 30s, for example, at most they're going to have probably one child, quite possibly none. So I think that takes out of the picture a lot of the reasons that would have brought uh, people back to a church. And may I say, any other religious institution? This is not just a Christian story; it's a Jewish story; it's a Buddhist story. It is a um, it is a global uh, change. Uh, You know, we 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 sometimes may say in a very kind of uh, uh, idealistic way. I talk about you know churches are rooted in family. Well, um, uh, yes, they are. And when families. Decline or collapse, how can organized institutional uh, religion survive? And the answer is maybe it can't in anything like the way in which it used to in the past. It has to rethink uh, entirely. Mm.
1: I have, in my copy of your book, not only underlined, not only highlighted, but also underlined. So it's it's something that I really paid careful attention to, this line. Uh, You write, when a 2018 study asked the nuns, nothing in particulars, why they rejected religious affiliation, 47% disliked positions that churches took on social and political issues, and 31% disliked uh, religious leaders. Only 21% denied a belief in God, and I suspect that as future surveys track the numbers of the no-religious affiliation people, we will see a steep upswing during and following that traumatic election year of 2016, how could we not, Uh, end quote. Uh, or, Or Would you, I mean, obviously it's been a year or so since you wrote that. I don't think there's been anything that we have seen to contradict that since.
2: Well, you know, the only thing I do is I change the sentence to say the traumatic election years of 2016 and 2020. Yes. Well, I,
1: you know, this is something that I anecdotally find because I find myself having at least one conversation a day with a younger person who is tempted to walk away from the church for precisely this reason or because of uh, what I think are similar dynamics with the sexual abuse cover-ups, whether in Roman Catholicism or evangelicalism. How can we reverse the sense of cynicism that that often is well-earned in younger people who really don't have a cognitive problem with Christianity, but they have a moral problem?
2: You know, I I phrase that in a slightly different way, which is I would say, uh, uh, okay, these are the negatives and they're very strong, but what are the positives? And you know, one very interesting thing, so much of the evidence of the nuns comes from work by the uh, Pew Research Trust. And if you look at their uh, evidence, it's fascinating because they will very often do follow-ups and they'll say, do you have a religious affiliation? No, okay. "Uh, Do you believe in God? Yes. Uh, do, you, do you pray? You know, yes, daily. Do you read the Bible? Yes, frequently. Uh, do you go to church? Often, yes. So in other words, there is a lot of religious behavior and practice out there, but there is a real serious reluctance to accept any sense of um, of affiliation um, and membership. And so one answer to your question might be, um, how do you take those uh Positive aspects and build on those, absolutely free of that um, uh, uh, of that institutional um, uh, institutional sense. Uh, and by the way, your your point about uh, you know some of the um, scandals and so on is is undoubtedly uh, true. I, I think one reason for the growth of nuns is um, twenty years ago, many people would have called, uh, uh, described themselves as Catholic, and these days they uh, probably. We've gone from 25% to 20% of Americans no longer uh, uh, say they are Catholic. I think that 5% drop, they, those people migrated directly to the nuns. They still have a strong Catholic sense, but they're not prepared to uh, uh, to admit that. So I think it calls for a lot of uh, uh, rethinking uh, about, um, about labels, uh, about identity, and going back to the sense of what the strengths are, what the continuities are, and how you strip away from the core reality of uh, Christianity so many of those, um, of those accretions which have, uh, which have built up. There are, there are people who are thinking about this uh, uh, very hard, but it's a, it's a large and demanding uh, project.
1: There's a kind of, in my evangelical wing of the world, uh, a kind of triumphalism uh, that was present throughout the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, which was to say, look at the mainline Protestant denominations and they're declining, uh, really capsizing. Uh, and, and we would say, well, that's because of their theological liberalism. And where one has theological conservatism, one is going to see the church growing. Now it looks almost as though maybe the mainline denominations were just experiencing decline earlier uh, than than what some very conservative evangelical denominations would maybe 20 years later. Were we wrong to assume that a more orthodox uh, theology would necessitate church growth?
2: I I hesitate to say wrong, but it wasn't the whole story. And by the way, uh, a lot of evidence coming out now suggests that uh, much of the difference in the decline of the mainline versus thriving evangelicals was demographic. In other words, the uh, the mainline churches basically were having these very kind of Scandinavian growth rates. Um, and were detaching from religion, while uh, evangelicals, more conservative groups, were maintaining older family values and structures. Now that demographic change has hit evangelicals um, in, uh, in a big way. And one reason, by the way, why some churches were masking this was because they were being reinforced by new immigrant groups. If it wasn't for new Catholic immigrants, then the Catholic Church in this country would be declining as much as the uh, Episcopalians, United Church of Christ. Old stock Catholics basically did not give up having children and going to church, but they sort of moved in that direction. Um, but then they got all these Latino and African and Asian people in the church, uh, and so their numbers were, uh, uh, were thriving. Um, so really it was masking. Uh, uh, decline. The question then uh, arises how much longer you can rely on that uh, that fact. And by the way, it's fairly obvious in what I'm saying, I pay such serious attention to immigrant religion uh, as being central to the future of American Christianity.
1: And it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that much of what's happening, not just with immigrant religion uh, in the evangelical sphere, but also internationally uh, would have a high prominence of both Anglicanism and Pentecostalism?
2: Anglicanism, yes, Uh, Pentecostalism very strongly. In fact, um, you know, we we talk about Pentecostalism as a, uh, if you like, a distinctive tradition, denomination, whatever. Pentecostal styles and assumptions are so common in, say, African Christianity, that you don't even mention them. They're just there. They're just the wallpaper. Uh, You look at uh, Catholics and Anglicans and Presbyterians and Lutherans, and what they do on a daily basis is what you and I would call Pentecostal. They call it normal Christianity. Hmm. I I quoted, since I read your book probably,
1: uh, I don't know how many times, uh, the section on cults. Uh, where you talk about the decline and the loss of of cults as being indicative of that these things tend to proliferate where there is some religious fervor. And the fact that we don't see as many of them is indicative of that loss. And I I couldn't help but think about being a kid in a Southern Baptist context and spending a lot of time learning about cults and how to Uh talk to people who are involved in cults. And we don't see that as much now. But what we do see are these growing sort of secular cults, QAnon and and uh, things like that. Uh, do you think that those things are related to what's happening in American religious life right now?
2: You know, uh, I think that's such an important point. And uh, the, uh, something like QAnon, I have no problem at all. Uh, in in calling um, a cult that it has uh, moved entirely um, uh, electronically. Um, What's different, of course, from the old cults uh, is that, obviously, people are not going off to um, found communes or live in uh, special houses uh, or anything. It's entirely done or overwhelmingly done from people's uh, um, basements. So um, in some ways they are uh, pursuing these technological trends uh, to, to their uh, logical extent, and often, you know, in very, uh, very, very frightening uh, ways. Um, I um, I wonder if there is a way that uh, churches could uh, observe um, observe what they are doing, work out what is wrong, and see if there is anything at all. Uh, that they can learn from the kind of um, uh, dangers of those interactions as they think about uh, moving towards more you know, remote services and and, uh, and so on. But uh, QAnon, by the way, you mentioned it's uh, secular. Many of those QAnon believers hold really uh, strange mystical beliefs that really are quite close to um, religious um, ideas. Uh, many of the ideas, which would have been around 20 or 30 years ago, for instance, about the danger from uh, Satanism and satanic child abuse and so on, many of those ideas ended up in QAnon.
1: Mm, That's fascinating. Well, I I have kept you longer than I told you I would, and I could talk to you for three hours more because I'm so fascinated at what you have to say. But I have one final question for you. And uh, I know that you're a careful scholar who doesn't like to... Uh, pretend to be psychic or a prophet, but so this is this is just an imaginative exercise. Uh, if you could look at the year twenty fifty one, an evangelical, American evangelical church situated maybe where I am now in Nashville, uh, and you had to you had to speculate how would that church be different from what we would see now
2: i would say several things i think it would be an extremely um i think it it, it could very well be a um a flourishing thriving uh, institution it would be extremely diverse in terms of languages and um, and backgrounds it would be using forms of outreach and evangelism which are only barely imagine, uh, imaginable for us today that it would be thinking very carefully about the way it um, it, it used kind of family uh, ideas and images and analogies as a way of uh, conceiving its, um, uh, its mission. It would be a church that would be thinking very hard about how to use and reach out to its old and its very, very old people who would be such a major part of the community at that um uh, uh, at that uh, point, when the churches ideally would be providing solutions that the um, secular governments were only barely beginning to uh, uh, to think about, I like to think that it would be a great church that would be absolutely plugged in to global facts and global realities in a world in which by far the largest concentration of Christians would be in, um, in black Africa. Not that there would be hostility between the two, but that that church would be thinking about what it could contribute to that larger global experience. And that's not a very specific uh, answer, but there are a couple of the things that I think are rising fast as issues and themes.
1: Would it be likely to have a building and a denominational
2: affiliation? It's interesting. It could have a great many um, buildings, but so much of its outreach um be very passing and uh, very uh, uh, very transient in the sense of uh, uh, networking, uh, meeting people for these um, gatherings um, where you discuss these uh, these ideas. And if you think of a uh, a very decentralized immigrant church separated from power, then you can go prepare for that right now by going to read your book of Acts very carefully.
1: Mm. Well, that's a good place uh, to stop. This has been uh, Professor Philip Jenkins. The book is Fertility and Faith, and if you're somebody who is involved in church leadership uh, or uh, any aspect of the church, you really you really should read this book. It will open your eyes to many things. Philip Jenkins, thank you so much for being with us today on Signpost. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, or wherever you listen. And uh, also check out the other podcast, the Russell Moore podcast there. It helps us if you leave a review. That that helps for people to find the show. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap the cover art and you'll find the show notes, uh, including some other resources and ways that you can get a copy of Philip Jenkins' book, Fertility and Faith. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts.